Before we get started, a quick word about our no-ad subscriptions. We're not supported by anyone but you. We don't get Zuckerbucks. We put a lot of effort and money into building a global company, all the way from Ukraine to Taiwan. We bring reporters from around the world the best news you will find anywhere. So please support us with our no-ad subscriptions. Go to the top right of any of our sites, and it'll, and it'll say subscribe with no ads. There you'll find, for 10 bucks a month, access to all of our sites with no pop-up ads on your phone. People love it. So please support us. We need your help. We really do. It's expensive what we're doing, and we need to grow to save the republic, and we can't grow without support. So thank you very much. Hallelujah. 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 Yeah, hello. Welcome to this episode of 26th of November 2023. See how I sidestepped finding out the number of the episode. I just referenced the date. But as I always keep saying, and uh, even though I run um, into the danger of boring you, but oh my goodness, what a time to be alive. And oh my goodness, what a time to be in podcasts. So uh, every week, literally a new issue blows up. Like Israel's news that was like, so today's news is now on the back burner. And we are over to Ireland and the Netherlands. Um, two news that actually have been much, much longer in the making, much, much slower burners than, um, than we make them out to be. I will explain in a second why that is. Um, but for now, as we have um, a mission to, to not only talk, but be jerked about by um, what's happening uh, currently, we also have an educational mission, we have a, have a cultural mission, a religious mission, so to speak. And with that, over to our religious uh, correspondent, Fabian, before we dive into um, what's actually happening. I like that. I like that that introduction as religious correspondent. I think that's an I think that's an honorary title. All right. Well, gentlemen, good to see you. Uh, today is Sunday, November twenty sixth. We are in the last Sunday of the liturgical year. Today is the feast of Christ the King. Um, with next Sunday, the first Advent, the new um, church year starts uh, on the church calendar. And just a historical note of Christ the King. This feast was inst instituted by Pope Pius XI uh, in 1925. This was six, uh, seven years after World War I. And the idea of this feast was to counter the secularism as well as the hyper-atheistic uh, nationalism that was perpetrating the 1920s. So we had a time where fascism was on the rise, communism was on the rise, communism took hold in Russia, and the church at the time said when a lot of countries had lost their monarchies that it was now time to look at the real king, which is Christ. And so and at this day, um, the, uh, the churches, not only the Catholic church, but the Lutheran church, the Anglican church, observes Christ the King, a feast. And actually, um, 
the uh, one of the, one of the interesting uh, facts is that um, uh, in the United States, um, the first church uh, that was built uh, in Cincinnati um, had the um, uh, it, the, this church was built on Mount Lookout, and it was the first church to be allowed by the Pope to carry the name Christ the King. So, um, having said that, um, I think with with all of that, we are in November is really a month to remember what happened in World War One and the disaster of which it was and the secularization that took hold in the 20th century. So what a great way to, at least in the spiritual process, counter that um, that state of secularism. So with that being said, let's now look to the present. And Christian, I'll go back to you. Yes, and with that being said, obviously the Netherlands and Ireland, but since our audience is predominantly in the United States, I don't want to torture any of the O'Reilly's, Murphy's, Flanagan's and what have you amongst you. Let's jump straight into Ireland. Um, Fabian, do you want to talk us through what's been happening there? And so the, the obviously the current riots and what preceded it, could you give us a, a quick read what's what's, what has been happening there? And then, then we'll um, dig a little deeper into that. Okay, so um, basically in Dublin, we had one of those stabbings, something that we've been very used to uh, in the past couple of years, um, that um, a stabbing took place. I assume, let me, let me look, it was, it was five people. And um, now among those, three children were stabbed and seriously injured, so they were put in the hospital. However, usually we have seen um, a pattern or a paradigm that uh, when you have these types of stabbings, um, as we discussed earlier uh, in, in previous episodes, usually you hear the slogans, don't look back in anger, um, vigils are held against racism, vigils are held against right-wing parties, oh, this will strengthen the right-wing parties. But oddly enough, um, a riot took place. A riot took place in Dublin, um, and it's been quite intense. Now, one thing people have to understand, um, Ireland's been... Um, you know, uh, experiencing heavy waves of migration. And we're not talking, uh, you know, 10% um, of the population. I think, Christian, is is it 20% of the population already? It's something crazy. And um, it, I don't quite trust the Irish government on and, these and, figures and just, either. Just, just to let everyone know, I did not know this. I mean, this was a complete... Like, You'd always think of Ireland like, oh, they suffered in the Euro crisis and then they recovered and then they did turn into sort of a tax haven. And they were always this island on the on the shores of, of the of Europe. But hearing this with with the uh, with the um, uh, with the riots, I started to realize, boy, they're at the level that Sweden is at. And now when you look to Sweden, you know that there's riots, but not from right-wingers or, or hooligans or whatever, but it's it's usually in, 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 in migrant neighborhoods. And Sweden already had to send in the military to counter these um, burnings and, and, and things that started happening in all these migrant-dominated neighborhoods. Now, um, 
in, in Ireland, you have a different response. And I'd like to hand the ball back to you because I saw there was an MMA fighter involved in this. Yes. So I had a short history of dabbling with MMA. I wasn't any good, but I still do Brazilian. Oh, I, I have more respect for you now. <laughs> Even more. Uh, I decided very quickly I would get seriously injured because I don't have the explosive speed, but I'm a decent enough sort of continuous endurance athlete. So, so more like wrestling. Like, but yes, Conor McGregor. There's a lot to be said. We could fill a couple of podcasts on the guy, but he made, essentially made MMA into what it is nowadays. And he's always been an outspoken guy, and he would probably still be on top of his game if he hadn't spent so much time on trash talking and uh, and then actually losing fights against very impressive Russian or Dagestani fighters um, like Khabib Nurmagomedov. But I'm digressing. Conor McGregor um, has been jumping full on to... Uh, in, he's, into very political uh, territory, which he hadn't done so far. He's like, we need to stop this. This this government doesn't have our interest at heart. This government is is looking the other way. Um, Christianity, and I mean, he he has been talking about his faith every now and then, but you thought it was part of his trash talk, but apparently it isn't. And so he got involved, and surprise, surprise. And then I'm going to hand over to Lucas, who's been spending quite a bit of time in the second Irish city of the world, Boston. And um, McGregor, I read this morning, obviously the Irish police or the Garda has filed charges for incitement of violence and hate speech. So, and with that, I'll hand over to Lucas. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, good afternoon and good morning to you, Todd. Um, yeah, I was kind of surprised to see this whole um, situation starting in Ireland, simply given the fact as for the Three of you, I wasn't even aware of the fact that Ireland had not only such a high quota of migration, but also of illegal migration. So as Christian mentioned this before, um, I've spent some years in Boston in total, where there's a huge load of Irish people. And there's a lot of young people who come there, you know, to do construction projects and stuff. I think it seems to be quite easy uh, to get a like a temporary work visa for the US when you're an Irish citizen. So they're there, they do their stuff and they go back to Ireland. Now, unlike uh, what these fine Irish people do, these illegal migrants, um, they just come into Ireland and they basically, uh, they just take what's being offered to real migrants. Um, keep in mind, that's the same situation as in Germany, Austria, France, etc. Now, the difference is, um, how do you end up as a migrant in Ireland? Now, after having read a bit more on this, it seems like there's a huge number of legal people who they just can't get out of the country. And I think this is very interesting and also, well, it's kind of a critical situation, so a situation that makes uh, that leaves me behind with a really bad feeling. When even this country that's on the far northwest of Europe and still um, isn't safe from th these waves of illegals entering the country and stuff. So back to you, Christian Fabian, top, please. We lost you, Christian. Your mic's off. Awfully sorry. So um, probably, probably we should point out um, one thing. All of this has been long in the making. We've quietly... And, and, and under everybody's radar. So to all of us, Ireland is still that green island and, you know, 
folks' names are like Joseph and Mick and and and, and what have you. Um, but no, I mean they they have been globalizing very very quickly and very quickly became the pet project for all kind of globalist entities. So it was a popular tax haven. And then you saw the likes of the Facebook headquarters, the Google headquarters, the everything headquarters for Europe and beyond is located in Ireland. And then it's like, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the uh, poster child uh, for globalization. See, it works. A formerly poor country has been transformed from a country of immigrants who go somewhere to a country that actually is receiving people. Isn't that great? Now, the interesting thing is obviously with, um, uh, as with most of these kind of scheme. Yes, a lot of expats come in and they spend a lot of money, but very, very few Irish folks actually get employed. So so, so there's that side of things. And we can, can talk a whole lot about um, Ireland sort of suddenly needing to justify itself to the Eurozone and then to, um, to, to other entities when it sort of ran into trouble in the 2008s. But story for another podcast. I want to drill down on what suddenly sparked the, um, the, the riots. So um, as always, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. So for, for quite a while, there has been a violence problem. It's been talked about in alternative media, but it never entered sort of um, broadsheet newspapers. And then it happened very, very quickly. Actually, let me backtrack and start with England. Earlier this year, there were already um, riots in Liverpool because uh, in a working class neighborhood in Liverpool, girls had been shattered up and this time it had been filmed on camera where a 15-year-old school girl had been shattered up by a migrant, probably twice her age, which is generally um, my observation in a lot of cities. I mean, there, uh, there is no such thing as too young. Quite often, if you see weird couplings, you're always tempted to, to call the police, even if, if there's like visibly somebody who's like 13, 14 and has her boyfriend next to her. And there's quite clearly a child that resulted from that union. I, mean, I, I even see it, see it here in Vienna. So, so, I mean, we've observed that in Germany as well, where in public pools, 12 year olds get hit on. Um, so, 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 I mean, and then that sparked a riot in this, in this working class neighborhood in Liverpool earlier this year. And then very quickly it was big it, big it, big it. But no, I mean, when the people were interviewed and then they they demonstrated, I don't even think they arrived outside that migration center in Liverpool. It was a quick blip. They were smeared, of course, back to Ireland. So a couple of, um, is it even two weeks ago, an Irish teacher by the name of Ashling Murphy got, got stabbed. And her boyfriend and her brother were actually quite outspoken what was happening. And that would have normally fallen by the wayside but then a couple of days later maybe a week later five people get stabbed amongst them um three small children and that sparked the riot and um, as you know like a recurring obsession for myself is what needs to happen for europeans to stand up and by that i don't mean riots obviously but um but it's quite often understandable particularly for populations that are ignored when they voice concerns they're being called bigots they're being called racists and and obviously they've got no political cachet. The working class parties, be they Labour in the UK, be they the Social Democrats in Germany, be they Sinn Fein in Ireland, um, they just just ignore them. And then then you have the, uh, the the riots. And unlike the Black Lives Matter riots, where a lot of people were like, oh, you you need to understand, you know, where they're coming from. 
and they need to let off a bit of steam and then such you don't have that sympathetic right but now apparently with everything that had been happening and i don't think it's unreal in israel the big pro-hamas marches um in, in in all major european cities and the accompanying riots suddenly things are not so easy to debate away and probably some thoughts from you guys before we pivot over to the Netherlands, but yeah, curious to, to learn your thoughts. Let me jump in. So I'm coming to you from Tel Aviv. So welcome from Israel. And oh. um, the more I see and the more I research and the more I observe, there is no escapable conclusion except that this is a, an effort to destroy Western society. Two migrations don't come into Europe and the U.S., at the same time, massively, um, unless it's organized, highly sophisticated, and when combined with our degrowth communist energy policy, I see that and there's no migration going into China. There's no migration going into Russia, very little. There's no migration going into uh, India. It's only the West, and it's being organized. And this is a an organized, sophisticated way to destroy Christianity and Western society, in my opinion. So we have to realize that and then act accordingly. But And Israel's part of that. I mean, they wanted this war here. This happened. It was pushed. It was enabled. It, was, it didn't happen by accident. Right after Ukraine um, was slowly starting to stop because of the pressure in the U.S. to cut off funding, boom, Israel happens where the IDF didn't show up for six, eight hours. I mean, it, it's not plausible. So that's my take. I'm more and more convinced of that conclusion. Right. I mean, it, it's certainly when it comes to the caravan that you guys had last year, there seemed mm -hmm. to have been elements of some sort of assistance. So, um, I, I mean, the rest we can explain away by push-pull factors, but the caravan seemed to be a bit too smoothly organized with all kind of... Well, you have Biden up. flying 10 million people around the country. I mean, it, it's... I agree, it's, but... Go ahead. Sorry. I totally agree with the whole caravan thing, but let's not forget that the people who came to the U.S. In, through this whole migrant caravan were, at least to a majority, uh, people from Middle and South America. And these countries um, do have a certain uh, Christian background. And what what people cannot say is about the illegals who came to the U.S., is that they don't work. Um, unlike True. many of the illegal immigrants who come to Europe, where most of them do not work. Interestingly, as you mentioned, Ukraine before, Todd, um, Ukrainians who came to Germany were at first believed um, to pick up jobs really quickly. Uh, there's been a lot of services being provided by people, especially by people who are doing this um, through nonprofits, like teaching them German, making sure they know which papers to fill in and stuff. Well, it turns out that most Ukrainians in Germany do not work at all. And why should they? Um, Germany is providing a comfortable safety net for those people who come here, after all. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, there is, it, it's, it's interesting that the effects of migration are different because the United States does not have that social net. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, we have to face the truth that among the migrants that do come to America, via the southern border. You have Africans, you have Hezbollah. <laughs> That's something you can't underestimate. Hezbollah 
is is allied up with Mexican drug cartels. So you have dangerous uh, contingencies that make it all the way up to, you know, northern states like Minnesota and Michigan and are sort of sleeper cells. However, um, the majority of the people that do come to the United States, um, which end up in states like Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, are um, Latin Americans with with a, a or Hispanics with with a uh, Catholic background. So in, in that sense, I mean, the United States is what the fourth largest Catholic country in the world. If you were to just add up all the, the, the Catholics in the in, in the country um, after what Brazil, Mexico and Italy. So um, fr from that perspective, it's 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 a different way to to um, uh, accumulate this. N nevertheless, the fabric of a nation changes through migration. And I think that's that's the whole problem. And the other thing, Todd, if if these people, if the, you know the uh, the coordination of all of this, you, you, we're already seeing that things are backfiring, and they're backfiring massively. So on the one hand, we have the riots now, Christian. Let's let's uh, focus on the Netherlands. What happened there? Well, yeah. let, let me just say one thing. I, I think what you're saying is true. That it's it's a natural response. They're acting rationally to come here, right? They get a chance. My my point is the doors were opened intentionally, and right. they were organized and uh, you know flown here. So I mean, anyway, I'll move on to yeah. the other ones. One last thirty second comment uh, when it comes to the migration that's heading from the south. I mean, it's no longer Latin Americans. Plus, interesting enough, the migration movement from Mexico is probably negative uh, at the moment. At least, probably a lot of Americans are moving there. And secondly, I mean, let's not underestimate the, the Arabic and African migration that these days come through Latin America, cheap flights there, and then they make their way up north. And I'm, I, I, I always want to make the point, like there, there were even like heads of states that were of Arab background, obviously there's right. like Ukele in El Salvador, there used to be Dr. Carlos Menem in Argentina, and uh, then a guy, eccentric Lebanese guy called Bukaram from, I think, Ecuador. So, so I mean, uh, all that is also changing. So it's, it's not all right. like, you know, like yeah. sombrero wearing. No, and, and Christian, we had this discussion this week, right? That don't underestimate the Arab um, quantity of people that are in South America. But at the That's same true. time, I mean, let's face it. Don't underestimate the amount of Arabs that are in the United States. I mean, what's going on in college campuses is very yeah. revealing. I'll add one more point to this. Um, guess who's a large group of migrants coming through the southern border now? It's the Chinese. Um, uh -huh. The last year alone, there's been 20,000 people um, who crossed the border illegally um, off Chinese citizenship, which is more than the last 10 years combined. So I think um, whatever you get out of this route is always a really interesting bunch of people. Unlike Europe, as I can only say, and I think this is a really good point of moving over to the Dutch election. Um, in my opinion, the Dutch election was mainly decided by the whole migration issue. And I think, Christian, uh, you've lived in the Netherlands for quite some time. I think you should be the first one to shed some light on this. I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. 
check us out at us-am.com and look for our big proud American Eagle logo. Yes, so, so what I find super interesting that the Netherlands, um, so I lived there on and off 2005 to 2010, and um, there you were allowed to have debates in Dutch newspapers as early as 2005, when I started reading Dutch newspapers and, and living there, you could say things that in Germany, even in 2023, you can't say. So, so I, I remember one article that was called Groot Ego, a Klein Loontje, which means as much as um, big ego, small perseverance. And they, they drilled down on the phenomenon what sociologists, Dutch sociologists were starting to call the problem of the little princes. So were, you know, the young male were, were raised as little princes in the family and they could do no wrong. And, and, um, and with that attitude, they ran into tons of problems, showed not to persevere on average. Obviously, we always, you know, they're, they're great individuals. We're not making uh, that argument to smear an entire group. But yes, on average, they weren't doing too well persevering <clears throat> with education, be that vocational or university or other. And... Um, then, interestingly enough, very, very early in the two, uh, so even when I was there, I got to learn two terms in, the two, in 2005, where they classified the Netherlands sort of in autochtone and allochtone. So, you know, so uh, as it were, indigenous Dutch and um, newly arrived Dutch. That was a term that I even learned then. Um, so th they weren't even pretending like it was the same thing. Um, and we backtrack a bit further, 2002, a very flamboyant Dutch politician was murdered by the name of Pim Fortuyn. And Pim Fortuyn had uh, a party called Leefbar Nederland, meaning livable Netherlands. And uh, he, he was he was a, a very, very out gay man, very flamboyant, talking about his, all his conquests and and such. But he, he made one statement. He approached migration, which is something that has fallen by the wayside. He criticized migration from a liberal point of view. It's like, we don't feel like going through emancipation for homosexuals and women all over again, because that's what's happening. Interesting enough, he was shot by a um, radical animal rights and leftist activist. I think he was being left out of prison in 2014. You know, that's sort of the, all that humanitarian <laughs> European uh, prison um, approach. And then something else happened. We all, we all have heard of that incredibly remarkable woman from uh, Somalia, Ayan Hirzn Ali, who's now um, married to that prominent um, historian, Neil Ferguson. And um, she ran for parliament, won a seat in parliament, started talking about Islam. Then she uh, made a movie with Theo von Hoch. And yes, you heard right, von Hoch is actually a distant re uh, relative, a grand, grand nephew of Vincent van Gogh, the, the painter. And um, they made a movie called Submission, and it was a very Islam-critical movie. Now, Theo van Gogh in 2004 got shot in broad daylight, had his throat slit, and had a note stapled to his um, stomach with a knife. Um, so so that, that kind of draws the picture. And the Netherlands started talking about, and as I said, there were very critical debates in the newspapers, but nothing really happened. People started, kept arriving in the country. And then um, earlier this year, uh, last year, there were the big farmer riots. Why? Because fundamentally because of nitrate concentration in the ground, um, they want, wanted to shut down 25% of all Dutch farmland. 
What, what's the, the status of that? Do you know? I mean, have is that succeeded or did the protest succeed to stop? I it? think it's still ongoing. Um, that would actually be a too, yeah. good thing to re reach out to the BBB. I mean, these kind of issues always go away, quietly go away, but mm -hmm. nothing fundamentally is happening. And and as we are seeing, I'm always saying Brussels and and um, Amsterdam is capital. That's so yesterday. I mean, <laughs> it's all going like at WF or UN level. It's like, well, shucks, we, we can't really do anything about it. So so, so, so it might be one of these things, but, but that can't be seen in a disconnected way. The farmer's right and migration because, wow, these 25% pesky farms, like imagine what we could develop. And we, we have a housing shortage, right? And more people start arriving. You see little things. So the Netherlands is an interesting country. And that's where a lot of American viewers might frown. Oh, it sounds a bit sounds a bit socialist. Um, so, for instance, there are two ways in the Netherlands to get housing: a, on the private market, which is somewhat small, or you wait long enough, or you enter a so-called um, cooperative, uh, cooperative housing association, and you pay in a certain money year by year, and they build houses, and uh, you're in the solid so, uh, solidarity pool. And when a house becomes available in a desirable location then after 10 years of waiting you get that house but you keep paying in now what happened with a lot of foreigners they arrived in the country by having large families which arrived from the same country where they were persecuted and they were got bumped up the list so mm -hmm. the people who had been paying into that scheme for 10 years were bumped down the list those people got bumped up the list and to add insult to injury they then stopped paying into into that fund so whereas the 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 gentleman's agreement is well yeah you get then get get the the um the apartment but you keep paying so other people can do nope that that kind of it's a very christian concept as it turns out mm. and so people get angrier and angrier but nothing happens and people still start arriving in record numbers in the netherlands in come um Gerd wilders and Gerd wilders is again a very flamboyant character and he was a bit of a joke. And, um, but now it turns out he's the strongest politician in power. And that's where I want to head it over to you. So he stands for two things that I observe on the one hand, joyously, on the other hand, not so joyously. So on the one hand, good, that outright libertarians like that eccentric guy in Argentina win, and that Gerd Wilders wins. Gerd Wilders is very well-spoken. He's not a frothing from the mouth radical, but, he runs his party like it was his own club. So unlike Germany, where there are regulations, there's a party law, Parteigesetz, where you prescribe how a party must look like and they must have certain governments in place, blah, blah, blah. In the Netherlands, you can run it like a private association. It can be you and everybody else, you can almost fire. I'm somewhat simplifying that. And so I'm kind of worried that there is a great chance. There is a gifted populist, a well-spoken man, a man who's identified the right problem, but can he deliver? But with that thought and all kind of other thoughts you may have, I hand over to all of you. Let me ask you that, that uh, I had read that there's thoughts that they're trying to push these farmers out because they want to build some kind of globalist city in the Netherlands, like a future capitalist capital city of the new world government. Have you heard any of that? I, I have heard mm -hmm. it as, as a theory. Mm -hmm. I don't think it has been overtly voiced. I do think that might be reading a bit too much Mm -hmm. into it however that being said i mean the view that a lot of these folks have they're like yeah i mean definitely there is a good urban future along the sea 
And I mean, why don't, I mean, it's, it's, it's the old sort of textbook uh, economics, national economics 101. Why don't we do what we do best as the Netherlands? We build computer chips. One of the leading companies, ASML. Um, we do other high-tech stuff, great. Why do we have to have all that farmland? What, what sense does it make that a country the size of the Netherlands uh, feeds so much of the world population? Makes zero sense. That's the rationale. And in that sense, building up the entire area because it's to the sea, uh, near the sea, it's great. It would make a lot of sense. I don't think it has been articulated in that way. I don't really think that any proper Dutch politician has that as a plan. Doesn't mean that it, it's not sitting somewhere in the drawer of the Tony Blair Institute mm -hmm. or the WEF. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't know. But I haven't heard that articulated in any broadsheet paper. Mm. Well, over to you, Fabian and uh, Lucas. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, first of all, uh, yeah, there's many thoughts that are uh, going through my head. Number one, I think it'd be a great uh, opportunity if we either reached out to one of the BBB representatives to ask them what the status is, or uh, if we talk to Eva Vladingerbroek, who obviously is very well informed of Dutch politics. So that could be one thing. I mean, the other thing you just want her on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things that I found interesting, uh, somebody posted quickly after the elections in Argentina and the Netherlands. Um, Argentina and the Netherlands did not use mail-in voting. <laughs> um, so um, it's it's it was, so it's an interesting week. Now it's up to Gerd Wilders. You know. Do you know where I actually saw him for the first time? I think this is this is a stitch in itself. He was on the Glenn Beck program back when people actually watched Glenn Beck because he was on Fox News. And he interviewed um, uh, Wilders back then. So this was in 2009, 2010, around that time. And you already had Wilders' warning of the things that were happening. So, um, I mean, he 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 and his hairdo have been there quite a long time. So, um, I guess if he's the Dutch Trump, um, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But what's interesting is obviously that the um, losers of this election, uh, Franz Timmermans, the guy, the, the dude who lost, is now lecturing the dude who won on democracy. And I think that's one of the great mistakes of any of these um, established parties that constantly deal with democracy as if it's their own thing to keep. And others that win outright in a democratic process are not um, part of the democratic process in their view. Yeah. So that's a that's a really, 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 really interesting um, observancy to have in this in these constant elections. Last thing I want to say, and then I'll hand it over to Lucas. Um, for my part in this podcast, I always want to bring in the geopolitical perspective. If Wilder's is allowed to form a government. We'll see if if that if they're going to prevent him from forming a government. So if he actually is allowed to form a government, by the way, uh, we had elections in Spain this year too, where the right wing um, parties actually won, but now uh, Spain still has uh, Sanchez as its prime minister. It's quite interesting. Um, so they're, they're obviously trying to prevent it. But what we're seeing from a geopolitical standpoint is that the liberal international order is crumbling. And the parties that are not conforming to the uh, liberal international order um, obviously are um, the uh, so-called right-wing parties. Now, what does that mean for Europe? If he were to form a government, you actually would have somebody who's anti-EU. He wants the Nexit. He wants to get out of the EU. And he's Moscow friendly. So 
I remember listening to Colonel Douglas McGregor um, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, well, you know what's going to happen? Europe's going to turn right. And you know what that means? They're going to be friendly towards Russia. So it'll be another crack in the wall towards the yeah. whole um, you, uh, war in Ukraine and Europe's relationship with Russia. And if, if, if this process continues at the end of all of this, um, we'll probably see a very Russia-friendly or we'll see Russia-friendly governments in Europe uh, if these elections like this continue. So um, either Germany will be completely isolated um, or um, Germany will be the last block to fall. But that's just my opinion um, yeah. with this election because it's, it's just another step stone. All right, over to you, Lucas. So I think the like everything you said is totally true. And the first thing I'd like to point out is the fact that um, there's so many great memes about American conservatives and their stance towards Ukraine. It's like, I think it's kind of like a schizophrenic situation where typically American conservatives love being fiscally conservative unless it's for certain countries um, such a, or certain actions. Whenever there's something you can throw into the military, seems like American conservatives love doing this. So um, there's a conservative and there is, the conservative is almost a bad word in the US now. I, it, it is like the, the rhino thing. Let, let's go yeah, with the rhinos. So people then, people then who do rhinos, um, yeah. yeah. There's also um, one means <laughs> you're right. related. You're correct. Yes. There's like um, some weeks ago, I came across an internet meme where there's like, um, you saw um, the Hamas rockets and you saw the um, Iron Dome rockets. And there's like a US taxpayer money and EU taxpayer money. So it's like, it's an open secret that um, Europe really spends or used to spend a lot into Palestine. Um, because, you know, if you just throw enough money into the fire, it's not going to go on fire. After all, it's all going to be extinguished. So um, it's really funny to see um, how European aid ended up in the hands of Hamas. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that the government, the totally corrupt government of a country that hasn't had any elections in the like, last 16 years, uh, where the last elections weren't really democratic either, um, that those are the bad guys who are literally taking the money for bad purposes. You can never thought so. So, but coming back to um, the general point of view towards Ukraine, I think as an American viewer, um, I'd be pretty surprised to see the election results. And I really had to recheck myself while Fabian was talking because there's 15 parties who got into parliament. So when you read about this um, huge um, win, the huge victory that Ged Wilders had, um, he got 23.6%. That is 37 seats, and that is like... Um, that's like roughly more than one fifth he got um, in the Dutch House of Representatives. So, um, what's going to happen now is the same issue that Yurkaida had, um, who, by the way, is kind of like the role model for all European right wing populists. Um, I think Yurkaida was the the proto Gerd Wilders, you could say. Um, the same thing's going to happen. the again. viewers who he was and where he was from. Well, Yurkaida was the. Um, in 1986, Yurkaida, an Austrian politician, um, was striving for the party uh, chairmanship in the Freedom Party, the FPÖ. And, you know, Haida died in 2008 um, through very strange circumstances. And 
Back then, people thought that the Freedom Party was dead. Now, Freedom Party is back at 30%. And Haida's former speechwriter, um, Herbert Kickel, who used to be the Austrian Minister of the Interior before the Austrian People's Party, the Conservative Party, um, ousted them. Um, he's, he's back on top. And when, when you look at the whole history and story um, and playbook of European right-wing populists, um, Jörg Haider is the guy to look up to. And I think um, Gerd Wilders is kind of like sharing the same destiny. And that is he will, as of right now, not be able um, to really push his agenda. And he's basically you, like he's pursuing a really freedom-loving agenda. He's he's not against free speech. He's against the people who want free speech abolished. He's against crime and he's against the people who bring in the crime. He's against drugs to, you know, to simply form a pushback on this whole um, Dutch special situation that Christian might uh, be able to elaborate more into. But what I want to say at this point is, um, while we might all enjoy the victory that Gerd Wilders had, um, he will not be able to form a government. And this is the same thing that Fabian mentioned before. In Spain, the conservatives, the real conservatives, um, had, like they had a huge turnout. I think the, uh, what's it, Partido Popular came out first, Vox came out, um, even offered their support. And the Spanish conservatives did not make it happen. And now you've got this um, left-wing government by Mr. Sanchez or so all over again. So yeah. all that I, all that I can say at this point is, um, what you can see in the Netherlands um, is the early consequences of migration gone wrong. In the Netherlands, there's this real gang crime. This is gang crime um, of an American level, I would say. Um, they like they even built a special prison with a court. Um, in order to, I think, to have like one criminal proceeding against one guy who's running um, the whole drug operations because Dutch love their liberty and they they love um, giving people a fair treatment even when they're suing them. Um, so in order to make sure that they can uphold the Rechtsstaat, the Grundsatz, how do you say, um, to uphold the the principles of a democracy, to give them a fair um, trial, they make things happen where you'd be rolling your eyes and they would never have to do these things if it wasn't for all the illegal stuff happening um, that has that is happening due to the fact that certain parties um, who've had power for the last decades simply ignored it. Like the people, as Chris mentioned, are being stabbed or shot on the open street. They're, um, there was a journalist um, who was shot, I think, two years ago, simply because he's reporting on this whole Moroccan um, drug crime ring. Back to you, please. Yeah, I think probably time for us to round it off, given that uh, Todd has another podcast. But um, I think sort of from, from my point of view, it, it kind of, we are back at Trump 2016. So it's sort of like getting... Well, not even getting into power for the Europeans just yet. So you may win elections, you may even get into power, but and then what? And you better have a plan for that. And I think many of the right-wing populist parties in Europe still have a bit to go. Probably the Austrian FPÖ is the furthest along the lines. They've had, like, by leaps and bounds, the most professional organization. And Lucas um, uh, can confirm that last time FPÖ got really like into power or in a coalition the first time they 
Austria was a target of sanctions. And that's already like, I don't know, was it 20 yeah. years ago? Something by like Bill that. Clinton, by the way, this was the Clinton government. <laughs> Yeah, um, this would be the this would actually be the topic for another episode. Like, I need to um, I need to leave in just about a second as we're about to have dinner. But the um, the Austrian government um, could not be sanctioned by the EU as a whole. So simply every single EU country and the US and some other countries, I think Israel among them, de declared unilaterally not to talk to Austrian politicians. Brilliant. I think that's that's kind of shows us what might potential responses be. Um, and this Fabian, was in 1999, you, like, right? Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Um final thoughts. Well, it's been it's been a heck of a week. Um and this just shows that we're gearing up for um 2024, a very decisive year with European elections as well as US presidential elections. Um and it's going to be, you know, I, I think I think one of the greatest questions of this decade will be um, what will elections be able to change within within a political system within the democratic West? Um, how many institutions are going to change if the elections demand change? Um, I mean, you know, Christian, you left Great Britain, a country that voted for Brexit, and now you have all the remainers back. So uh, what did an election actually do in this uh, instance? I think that's going to be the, the question that um, we have to answer. And for all those that want to uphold democracy, uh, you have to find ways to actually bring about the necessary adjustments that you need uh, in order to, to, to make reform happen. And I think one of the greatest reforms that people are demanding is a reform to immigration. Uh, a change in immigration, as well as upholding your own traditions, customs, values, and beliefs. So with that being said, we're in a uh, in an interesting uh, year ahead, and uh, I look forward to discussing it with you and possibly some very interesting guests. With that, I wish you a great evening. Back to Todd, as to the host of the show, final word. So I, uh, I think on your, to follow on what you said, we have to find ways to continue to wake up the populations because the people are the only ones that can stop this. It's not going to be an election. The people have to decide they've had enough. So we, I, I would like to make this podcast more and more helping Europeans wake up to what's happening. Uh, in the U.S., we just had Jan 6. I'll throw this up. This is uh, Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> just basically, yeah, we were right the entire time. So... Um, that has been helpful, but we need something like that in Europe to continue the Great Awakening. I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, and a blessed Sunday. Is it already Advent, or is it actually next week, guys? That's next week. It's next, next week. week. Okay, next brilliant. Week. If you would have paid attention to, to yeah, my yeah. intro. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Take care, guys. Stay safe.